The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, reading verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We are analyzing at the moment the content of this phrase about the wiles of the devil. And we've seen that the devil exercises these wiles upon the church in general, producing a travesty of the church, producing something that is so different from the New Testament church that you can't even recognize it to be the same thing, and yet persuades people that it is still the Christian church. The wiles of the devil, as manifested in heresy and in apostasy and these other general ways. But then we've also started looking at the wiles of the devil as they're exercised upon the individual Christian believer. And here we see that he can attack the mind, he can attack the experience, the realm of experience, sensibilities, that part of man's being, and also the more active part concerned with the will and with volition. Well now, at the moment, we're looking at the wiles of the devil as they are exercised upon us in the realm of experience. We've seen that uh, he sometimes queries the place of experience altogether. He'll either exaggerate its importance or dismiss it. And then he does the same with feelings. Much confusion we saw is caused by that. We then looked into that strange realm of where the physical and the psychological end and the spiritual begins, not to mention the psychic. A very difficult realm. And there obviously, again, is a great field for the exercise of the wiles of the devil. But now we've moved on from that to another group of difficulties. And that is the devil attacking us in the realm of assurance of salvation. Now, this is the subject we began to consider last Sunday morning. How the devil tries to trip us and to get us into trouble just in that particular realm and matter of assurance. And the first thing we saw was that he tries to delude us by giving us a, a false or a spurious, a counterfeit sense of assurance, a false peace, a false joy, the Laodicean condition. When we think that all is well, that we're very rich, when indeed we are very poor and naked and blind. Well, having looked at that, we're moving on to another aspect. And here now we are going to look at the way in which the devil tries to shake us in our assurance in some form or other. Now, I laid down at the end last Sunday morning a proposition that I want to repeat because it's a very important one. If we are not clear about this, we shall all inevitably be in trouble. The devil cannot rob us of our salvation. Try as he will. That is something he cannot do. 
But while he cannot rob us of the salvation itself, he can most certainly rob us of the joy of salvation, or the enjoyment of the salvation, or the rejoicing in the salvation. Now that's the thing we're going to look at. This is the reason why it is possible for us to be Christians and yet not really happy. It's the whole explanation of the so-called miserable Christian. I know there are people, and I'm going to deal with them in a moment, who say that's impossible. There's no such thing as a miserable Christian. The answer is, there is. And it is the wiles of the devil that produce such a condition. He shouldn't be allowed to, of course, but he does. And therefore it behoves us to examine this matter. Now then, let's look at some of the ways in which he tries to shake us in our confidence. We're looking at the devil as the Bible describes him as the accuser of the brethren. A kind of counsel for the prosecution. Always accusing. Bringing in an accusation. Or the devil, if you like, as our adversary. Now then, how does he do this? Well, the first is the one I've already hinted at in passing. He queries sometimes, or causes us to query, the very possibility of assurance. There are many Christians who've never had assurance of salvation because they don't believe even in the possibility of assurance of salvation. They say it's something that literally cannot happen. Now, there are many uh, ways in which this has been taught. For instance, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that. I don't want to stay with this because I did mention it when we were dealing with the, the, the whole case of the Roman Catholic Church. But that is a part of her teaching. She opposes strongly, violently, the teaching of assurance of salvation. She says that no person can be assured that he's going to heaven while he's in this life and in this world. Now, we needn't go into the reason for that teaching. It's a misunderstanding of the gospel, and of course it is obviously a part of their whole system. It means that you're always dependent upon the priesthood. It means that you've always got to go and confess your sins. The confessional comes in, and all that accompanies that, and indulgences and so on. It means, of course, that you need the help of the saints, and you therefore pray to them. All that's typical of Rome comes in largely because of this question of assurance. Even when you're dying, well, it's still uncertain. You have to go to a place they call purgatory, and their prayers have to be offered for you, candles have to be lit, payment has to be made. The whole thing is so uncertain. Of course, you're assured that the church will probably manage it in the end, but... Uh, you can't be sure while you're here. It does away with the whole doctrine of assurance. It is indeed the key to the understanding of all that utter travesty of the Christian church as depicted in the New Testament. Well, of course, if you believe that kind of teaching, you will never have assurance. And the result is that you will always be more or less an unhappy and a miserable Christian. But this teaching, unfortunately, is not confined to the Roman Catholic Church. There are those who are Protestants, and sometimes very good Protestants, who tend to hold the same teaching. And they do so for this reason, that they regard it as presumption. They say, who am I to say that I'm a child of God, that I'm saved? I'm so unworthy. I'm aware of so much blackness in myself. Surely they say this is presumption. Now, this happens in very good people. 
I've known some very good and godly people and very active workers in the Christian church who've been in this position. They've regarded it almost as sinful to claim assurance of salvation. They say, look at that man claiming that he's a child of God and so on. They regard it as something which is almost terrible. Very well, if, if the devil can succeed in making us think along those lines. Obviously, he's already achieved his end and object. And he'll keep us in this fearful, unhappy state and condition. Sometimes up, sometimes down, probably more down than up. Almost afraid to be happy. And indeed, he can press this point, and has done so very often, to this extent. That, uh, in a sense, your only assurance of salvation is that you're very miserable. Now, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. I could give you chapter and verse. There have been sections of the church that rarely have taught that. They've been so afraid of the false joy that they've gone to the other extreme. And as I say, ridiculous though it is and though it sounds, they've only had a kind of contentment when they have felt utterly miserable and complete failures. Well, now, there is no need to stay with this, I'm sure. The answer to it all is the teaching of the New Testament itself, which exhorts us to assurance. These things, says John in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 13, these things write we unto you that believe that ye might know that ye have eternal life, that you might know it. The exhortation of this great apostle Paul everywhere is rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. You're not meant to rejoice in yourself. Who said you were? Therefore, if you look in, you can't be rejoicing. But you are not to rejoice in yourself. You are to rejoice in the Lord. Ultimately, this is a matter of understanding clearly the doctrine of justification by faith only. It is the bringing in of works again in some shape or form that accounts for this failure to realize that the Christian is meant to rejoice, as that hymn of Isaac Watts, which we have just been singing, puts it so well. These sons of grace have found glory begun below. Celestial fruits on earthly ground from faith and hope may grow. Very well. We are meant to be rejoicing as we are marching to Zion. And the thing, of course, is so important today that if we give the impression that to be a Christian is to be miserable, despondent, and unhappy, well, we shall not succeed in attracting other people to the Lord Jesus Christ and to God. So the devil naturally makes great play with this, and he does it with the most conscientious people. He does it, I say, with the best people generally, because they're so afraid of making a false claim and of bringing the gospel into disrepute. What if I said that I'm saved this and then somebody sees something wrong in me? But that's very false argument. The apostle describes the members of the church, even the church at Corinth, as saints. They are. They've been separated unto God. They're his children, though they were guilty of some very grievous sins. In other words, we must beware of the snare of the devil at that point and not allow him to entrap us and get us into confusion. But then, of course, we go to the second. And the second is that the devil tries to persuade us to believe the exact opposite of that, which is that you cannot be a Christian at all if you don't have assurance of salvation. 
You see, the principle, I keep on reminding you of this Sunday after Sunday, the method of the devil, his principle of operation is always the same. Always from one extreme right over to the other extreme. The devil is always at the extremes. Doesn't matter what the extreme is, he's always there. He always makes us overdo something. And it's by overdoing things that we do the harm, because we have been caught by the wiles of the devil. So having persuaded us, or having escaped his persuasion rather, that assurance of salvation is not something which is impossible, he now goes to this other side and says, well, if you haven't got assurance, you're not a Christian at all. Now here again is a matter about which we've got to be very careful. Even the Protestant reformers, one feels, more or less uh, fell into this trap to a certain extent and at certain points. It's not at all difficult to understand why they did. It was, of course, their reaction against that Roman Catholicism uh, which, uh, to which I've been referring. They were anxious to bring out this faith principle, this justification by faith only. They said a man doesn't wait until he's absolutely perfect before he knows that he's a child of God and that he's saved. That had been the whole trouble with Luther, you see. Luther was a Christian man. He was unhappy. Why? Well, he felt he wasn't good enough. He couldn't be sure that he was a Christian until he'd got rid of every sin. He couldn't be sure that he was a Christian until he had not only ceased to commit acts of sin. The very desire for sin should have gone. That was Roman Catholic teaching, that you must be completely sanctified, absolutely perfect, before you're entitled to this assurance. Well, now, that, that was his condition. But suddenly, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to this glorious New Testament teaching that just shall live by faith. This righteousness of God which is given by faith. This is something which comes at once, immediately can be received. He saw it and was liberated. And of course, he rejoiced immediately in his salvation. It was not surprising, therefore, that he and the other Protestant fathers who followed him should have gone so far as to say that faith always includes knowledge. That you really can't have faith without having assurance. That you can't really see this and believe it without automatically, as it were, rejoicing in it and being absolutely certain of it. But there is no doubt at all that they went too far. Of the two, of course, it's so much better than Roman Catholicism and its teaching because it does bring out this vital element of justification. But it goes too far and thereby has often been a cause of uh, causing great unhappiness and uncertainty, not to say misery, in the minds and in the hearts and in the experiences of many Christian people. Well, how do you prove that the teaching was wrong, says someone? Well, I do it again by quoting that very verse that I've already quoted to you out of the first epistle of John in the fifth chapter. And there it is in that thirteenth verse. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that, in order that, ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. They were believers. He's writing to believers. But they were lacking assurance. He writes in order that they may have it. And, of course, the whole of the epistle to the Ephesians is, in a sense, written for the same end and object. In other words, we must be clear that there is a distinction here. It is possible for one to be a true believer 
and yet for various reasons, to lack assurance of salvation. It's generally because of defective teaching, or because the devil, I say, has persuaded us in some way or another to be looking too much in at ourselves. Now we are supposed to examine ourselves, but if we do it overmuch, we shall be cast down in misery and unhappiness. We must avoid the two extremes there, of no self-examination, too much self-examination. In other words, the answer is this, that a clear understanding of the doctrine of justification by faith should lead to assurance of salvation. Being justified by faith, therefore, says the Apostle in Romans 5.1, being, therefore, justified by faith, having been, therefore, justified by faith, we have peace with God. I don't care even if you adopt the other translation. Let us have peace with God. It comes to the same thing. You ought to have it. Very well. One translation says you've got it. The other says you should have it. But the point is that in both they're agreed that a clear understanding of justification should lead to assurance and to certainty and to rejoicing. Now, we must be clear about this, therefore. It is possible to be a Christian without the assurance, without knowing it. Well, you say, how do I know that I'm a Christian at all? Well, the answer is this. If you know that you're a sinner, if you have ceased to rely upon your own works, and if you are looking only to the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work on your behalf in his life, in his death upon the cross, in his resurrection and ascension, if you are not looking at all to yourself, if you have no confidence in the flesh, and if you say, well, I don't know, but my only hope is in him. I'm trusting only to him. I'm relying utterly upon him. You say that, and I say that you are a Christian, and that what you need is to have instruction, to have your eyes open. You can be a Christian without assurance, but you should have assurance. And you shouldn't rest content without it. You should realize that you're a very defective Christian without it. Defective from your own experimental standpoint. Still more defective from the standpoint of your witness and your testimony. Here it is, I say, so open and plain. We are meant to be rejoicing people. And we have no right to be anything else. I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you're not rejoicing. But I am saying that you should rejoice. And that you should deal with yourself until you do rejoice. Get back again and clearly understand the doctrine of justification by faith only. Well, there you see the devil on the one hand and on the other. Pressing us too far would get us into confusion about this assurance. And depress us and make us miserable and unhappy. Let me hurry to another way in which he does the same thing. And that is by making us look back. The past. What a trouble the past is in the life of most of us. How often are Christian people robbed of their joy and their assurance by the devil persuading us to look back, looking at the past, skeleton in the, in the cupboard. There's nothing that he does so frequently as this. There's nothing to put it the other way around that one has to do so frequently as a pastor or a physician of souls as to exhort people to let the dead past bury its past and never to look back. 
forgetting the things that are behind. Now, how does he do it? Well, he puts it like this. He comes to a man who has only become a Christian perhaps later on in life, and he says, it's too late. He says, you're a coward, you're a cad. You've had your fill of the world's pleasures, and now when you're beginning to get afraid, because you're getting old and because you're dying, you turn to God and to Christ. You coward. No, no, he says, it can't happen like that. God is a just and a righteous God, and he can't let you live in the world until the last minute and then turn. Too late, my friend, he says, too late. He says this very frequently to those who have been converted and have become true Christians. Or if he doesn't do it like that, he does it like this, and this is a much more subtle one. He makes you think of the years you've wasted. You've spent all those years living the life of the world in godlessness and irreligion. Just wasted it all. And you can't forgive yourself for that. You see it now. But there it is. You've done it, and... He can make you so utterly miserable that you'll be quite dejected. you lose all the joy of your salvation because of the years that you've wasted. They've gone irretrievably. You can't get them back. Then he goes on and says, you see, if you hadn't wasted them like that, think what you might be now. Now, isn't it extraordinary that we can be deluded like this and trapped by the devil? But don't you know something about this? Think, he says, of... What you might be now, if only you'd become a Christian in your adolescence or when you were young, but you've allowed the opportunities to slip. You've come in late, here you are. You might now be a shining, glorious, wonderful saint, but gosh, you've allowed the time to go. And then another way is this. Think of what you might have done. Think of the good you could have done. If only you'd been become a Christian when you were young, you might have been a foreign missionary. A great church might have come into being as the result of your activities. You might have given great gifts to this or that. The whole thing might have been different and you would have been a Christian full of wonderful achievements. Look at the good you could have done in the kingdom. Now the devil just holds us face to face with these vain regrets that he can cast us down into the very depths of despondency and almost despair. He'll keep you looking at your past in all these ways. Vain regrets. The opportunities that have gone that are never to come back again. And what do you say to him? How do you meet him? Well, of course, when we come to the positive exposition of the whole armor, we shall see it still more clearly. Let me anticipate to this extent to give relief to any burdened, unhappy soul that may be listening to me, who's been just looking back across wasted years, a wasted life, wasted opportunities, if only I'd been delivered earlier, and so on. In the name of God, I say to you, realize that that is always the devil. It's always the devil who makes you look back, because what he's doing is this. He wants to spoil the present and the future. And as long as you are looking back, You'll have no pleasure in the present. You won't be doing your work properly now. And you won't be able to do your work in the future. Can't you see that it's the wiles of the devil? Oh, let me open your eyes and see what's happening. Your regrets are useless. You can't undo the past. There's nothing you can do about it at all. If you have no other reason, that's enough. Don't waste your time. But see that it's the devil. While you are downcast because of your past, you're downcast in the present. And it is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And while you're unhappy, you're not functioning well now. So for every reason, refuse. But you know, I've got something still more wonderful to say to you. The devil says, it's all wasted. Irretrievable. Never have an opportunity again. 
That's gone and gone forever. It's a sheer waste. Turn to him and say, I remember the words of my Lord who said that you're a liar and the father of lies. That you are a liar from the beginning and I see that you're still a liar. What you're saying is not true. What God says is this. I will restore the years that the locust hath eaten. Thank God. I agree. Amen. It's the only word in the universe that can tell you that this morning. No other teaching can tell you I will restore the years that the locust hath eaten. But God says it. And God can do it. You know, my friend, in the hand of God you can do more in five minutes than you could have done in fifty years on your own. Don't listen to the devil. No, no. The past is not altogether hopeless. It doesn't mortgage the present nor the future. God delivers you, makes you a new creation. You're a new man in a new world. Leave the past. Don't look at it. Never look at it again. It's always the devil that makes you look back. Refuse it. Set your face steadfastly towards the future that is so glorious before you. Well, of course, I want to add in this category also the way that he sometimes, and this is a devilish thing for the devil to do, he raises up some past sin, sin committed in the past. And he'll so hold it before you that you can't get away from it. Whichever way you look, it's there. The thing, one sin perhaps, that you did in the past. Let me illustrate this with one brief illustration which will show you, I think, the whole point I'm trying to establish. I remember very well the case of a man who became a Christian at the age of 77. He had lived a very evil and a very violent and godless, sinful life. But at the age of 77, in a very wonderful way, this man was converted. And the time came for him to have his first communion. He'd never been at a communion service in his life before, and this to him was the greatest moment of his life. Having seen the way of salvation, having understood justification by faith only, the old men had come to see that all his sins had been forgiven, blotted out as a thick cloud, that God had cast them all into the sea of his forgetfulness, and he was truly rejoicing in his salvation in a most wonderful manner. Here comes this great Sunday night, the first communion service. And he partook. I shall never forget his face. The joy and the tears mingling together. He was really having a foretaste of heaven. And we were all rejoicing with the men. And then the next morning, Monday morning, there was a loud knocking at our door before we'd even got up. We couldn't make out what it was. And on finding out, we found this poor old man standing at the door, heartbroken, utterly wretched, weeping uncontrollably, utterly disconsolate. Having got him into the house and having questioned him, I discovered that his trouble was this. He'd gone home like that with friends rejoicing and had gone to bed and was just lying on his back in bed going to sleep when suddenly he was reminded that 30 years before in a public house, in a discussion about religion. He had said and had repeated it with oaths and cursing many times that Jesus Christ, forgive the expression, was a bastard. He hadn't thought about this during the 30 years at all. He probably said the same thing many times. 
He'd never thought about it. He had been converted, he'd become a Christian, rejoicing in his salvation, taking his first communion at the very height of his enjoyment and happiness. And there he is going to bed happier than he'd ever been in his life. And this thought came back to him, where did it come from? Well, you know, there's only one answer to that, that's the devil. The wiles of the devil. Later on we shall find the apostle talking about the fiery darts of the wicked one. He just threw it at him. Knowing the man was rejoicing, he resurrected a sin of 30 years before and hurled it at him. Who are you to take communion? Who are you to call yourself a Christian? How can you be a Christian? And he'd spent a whole night in agony and torment. Sleep was impossible. He was down in the depths of the lowest hell. He'd never been so low nor so unhappy and so miserable. It was the devil, you see. But you say, how could that have happened? You say the men had seen the doctrine of justification by faith only. I know. And that's the sort of thing that a superficial Christian says who doesn't know the devil and doesn't know much about the wiles of the devil. Once saved, always saved. I believe, put my name to a card, forever, happy, perfectly, ever afterwards, no more troubles. It's not true, my dear friend. We are confronted by the most subtle adversary and foe. He knows exactly how to trip us and how to catch us. And when nothing else will do, he'll take up one thing perhaps like this out of a life which was altogether evil and had been utterly profane and violent and foul in the extreme. Picks out one thing, the most sensitive thing of all, to hurt a Christian now that he should have ever used such an expression about the Son of God who'd loved him and who had died for him. But with it he got him down and robbed him of his assurance and of his joy. What's the answer to that? Well, the only answer to that is, you see, and thank God for this, it doesn't matter what you may have said in the past. What matters is what you say now. How often have I had to say that to people? But you know, they said, I, I've said this and I've argued like that. My dear friend, I say, I don't care what you've did, done in the past. The question is, what do you think of the Son of God now? I pointed out to my old friend that his very distress was the proof of the fact that he was a Christian. If he hadn't been a Christian, he would still be saying the same thing and thinking it was rather clever to say it. His distress was a proof of the fact that he was a Christian. If he could have cut his tongue out, he would. He'd do anything to erase that. That's the proof that he's a Christian. The devil is wrong again then. You can turn the tables on him and send him fleeing away from him. If you now love him and desire to know him, I say in the name of God, it doesn't matter what you may have said or done in the past. It's what you're saying now that matters. Have nothing whatsoever to do with the past. Let's hurry on. Another group of troubles arises in this way. Owing to variations in experience. Now here again. Is a most fruitful line which the devil adopts so frequently. Variations in our experiences. In other words, a man finds himself like this. He became a Christian, was full of rejoicing and of praise and of thanksgiving. But now he begins to notice that he doesn't feel things as he used to feel. Doesn't seem to enjoy it as he did at first. At first everything was wonderful. Bible reading, prayer, fellowship with Christian people, activities, everything. But now he begins to notice that this is no longer the case. He hasn't got the feelings he had. He hasn't got the enjoyment. He, he's aware of a sort of dryness that has come into him. 
and a lifelessness and a deadness. He seems to be walking in a kind of darkness as the prophet Isaiah describes it in chapter 50 and in verse 10, the child of light walking in darkness. And he feels that he's lost something and feels that he can't get it back. And he begins to say, where is the blessedness I knew when first I sought the Lord? It seems to have gone. Now then the next step is, well, I wonder whether I am a Christian at all. Surely for men's truly a Christian. He can't pass through this sort of phase. This is quite impossible. It ought to be getting better and better, but I seem to be worse rather than better. Am I a Christian? Have I ever been a Christian? Was it some false or spurious experience that I had? Was it some psychological something that happened to me? Is it really possible that I am a Christian after all? I'm sure I'm describing the experience of most who are present who've been Christians for any length of time when I put this case before you. Haven't you known the wiles of the devil at this point? Or uh, haven't you? If you haven't, then I say you really had better make sure that you're a Christian. If you know no variations at all in your experience, I take leave to put the question as to whether you're a Christian at all. As I was indicating the other morning, that's the sort of thing the cults do. The cults always overdo it. The Christian does no variations in his experience. What happens when a man becomes a Christian is not that he's suddenly lifted from the ground right up to the heavens and then spends the rest of his life in an orbit up there. It isn't true. There are variations. Are you the same two days running? Now, I think I've said this before. It's a very wonderful thing to me. And I thank God for it. Let's use it as an illustration in this whole matter of preaching. I'll let you into a secret. The most wonderful thing about preaching to me is this. That I have no idea whatsoever what's going to happen in a service as I come up those steps. Variation. Very difficult to realize this. And the devil attacks one on that. We always want to be there, don't we? But we are not. There are variations. Why are there variations? Well, it's partly what we were dealing with two or three Sundays ago. The physical comes into it tremendously. And you mustn't exclude that. My dear friend, though you're a Christian, you're still in the body. You're still in the flesh. And you can't separate and divorce yourself from your body. Oh, how some of the saints have had this trouble and this problem. That whole physical element and the psychological element tend to come in tremendously at this point. We needn't go over it again. But here it is, looked at now from this direct standpoint of experience. And the poor Christian is unhappy and he's cast down and wonders whether he's ever been a Christian or not. Now then, what is the trouble here? Well, you see, the trouble here is this that the devil has persuaded us to pay too much attention to our states and our moods and to our feelings instead of our relationship to him. You see, the Christian is meant to have the enjoyment. All right, says the devil, I'll keep you on that. Let me use an obvious illustration again. The Christian has got a heartbeat and it comes through to the pulse, doesn't it? And the pulse beat 
is important, you see. And if it's too rapid, there's something wrong with you. If it's too slow, there's something wrong with you. All right, but if you spend the whole of your time in counting your pulse, you won't do anything else, will you? And there are many Christians who are doing that. They're spending the whole of their time taking the pulse rate or taking the temperature. Not sure that they're well. Get the thermometer and feeling the pulse. They spend the whole of their lives like that. There are many, many Christians who've gone right through their whole experience just in that state and condition. And you see, it's the wiles of the devil that has persuaded them to do that. They say, of course, but I want to be a healthy Christian. I want to be well. Yes, but my dear friend, when you become so concerned about your health that you make yourself ill, you've got the wrong balance, haven't you? Very well. You see, it's always this question of balance. The light-hearted, glib Christian, the morbid, ultra-sensitive, over-careful, hypochondriacal Christian. And there are many such. So I say the key to the answer, the solution to the problem, is just to realize that whenever you're miserable and unhappy, you begin to ask questions, and you say, what am I unhappy about? Well, you find that you're unhappy because you're not enjoying the relationship to him as you should be. And that makes you query whether you're in the relationship. And the answer is, whatever I may feel, it is the relationship that matters. And my feeling do not make the slightest difference to the relationship. Thank God. I'm suddenly reminded of the wonderful illustration in many ways that that uh, Scottish evangelist John McNeil used to use in order to make this point clear. It was his typical way of putting it. He wanted to get people to see the difference between the relationship and the enjoyment of it. And this was the way he used to put it. He was a traveling evangelist. He'd be away from home perhaps two or three years at a time, going around the world holding meetings and then would come home. And this was his illustration, that imagining himself arriving home on one occasion and he'd been working very hard and was very tired and very weary, but at last he arrived home and there was his wife and the children. I think they had seven or eight children or something like that. And he pictured himself turning to his wife and saying, Mary, who are these? And she said, well, John, they're, they're your children. Then he, tired and exhausted, said, do you know, Mary, I, I know what it is, but I somehow don't realize, I don't feel that they're my children. And then his wife replied, saying, John, it doesn't matter whether you feel it or not, you're their father. Well, all right. I hope you'll remember the story. Remember the story, my friends, and apply it when you say, I don't feel now as I used to feel. Thank God. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it's there whatever you may feel. That's the thing that matters. Listen. Twixt gleams of joy and clouds of doubt our feelings come and go. Our best estate is tossed about in ceaseless ebb and flow. No mood of feeling, form of thought is constant for a day. But thou, O Lord, thou changest not. The same art thou always. That's the answer. I grasp Thy strength, make it mine own, my heart with peace is blessed. I lose my hold, 
And then comes down darkness and cold unrest. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with all. Thy mighty grasp of me. I may feel that I've lost him. He'll never lose me. I will never leave thee nor forsake. I will never let thee go. Oh, love, that wilt not let me go. Rest in it. Whatever your feelings are. He will never let you go. He cannot deny himself. And you are his. And you are his forever. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice. Don't forget the addition. With all. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's not to be trifled with. It's not to be played with. It mustn't lead me to say, well, I can do what I like. I can sin as much as I like. I'm saved. Always saved. Though I plan... No, no. Rejoice with all. Thy mighty grasp of me. So when the devil comes to you and tries to shake you because your varying feelings and moods and states... Say to him, it's all right, I'm not saved by them, I'm saved by him. And I'm relying on him, and on him alone. And you do that, and you'll find your feelings will come back. You'll find that they'll all be restored to you. But as long as you rely on him, his strong grasp of you, thus you are able to defeat the wiles of the devil. And to rejoice again with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. God willing, we'll continue this theme next Sunday morning.